um, good morning again. It's lovely to be, I'm getting my first go at Micah this morning, so I'm very pleased to be preaching on Micah. A brief prayer before we start. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, when I was first getting into the Bible as a teenager, I was amazed to discover that many details of Jesus' life were prophesied, predicted in advance um, by the prophets in the Old Testament part of the Bible. And uh, in our studies in Micah, we've arrived at an example of exactly that happening. So 700 years or thereabouts before Jesus was born, Micah spoke these words, which are often read at, um, at carol services. He said, now this is verse 2, Micah 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you will, uh, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So God will raise up the world's true king, the Messiah, or the Christ, it's the same word, God's global, eternal king. You will raise him up out of the little town of Bethlehem. Now, that second name, that you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, is really there to specify which Bethlehem God has in mind. There was another Bethlehem in Israel up north in the area of Zebulun. Not that one, he says, but this one in Judah. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, in Judah. That is the town of King David, where the great King David, who had ruled centuries before Micah, where he had been born. Well, Micah's prophecy created such a clear expectation that when, 700 years after Micah, wise men from the east came to King Herod to ask him where Messiah was to be born, Herod's courtiers simply opened up the book of Micah and said, Bethlehem, he will be born in Bethlehem. Now, I wonder how you're getting on with Micah. I wonder how you're doing with it. And a couple of people have said, oh, I find Micah a little bit difficult. Well, um, that's true. That even for those of us who've been reading the Bible for years, Micah is a little bit off the beaten track. But it is not beyond the grasp of a single one of us to grasp what's going on here. So that's what we're going to try and do this morning. Put it this way. Here we go. Let's just get our heads into it. Put it uh, let me put it this way. So God has chosen his people Israel. But Israel has made a choice of its own, which is not to have the God who chose them as their God. Instead, they've abandoned him, worshipping false gods, idols, and they've abandoned his law and taken lifestyle into their own hands. That's what they've done. And, uh, so, uh, and, and as a result, within the people of God in Israel, um, they're trampling his ways. Truth and justice and kindness are being, are being abandoned, and in their place, corruption, violence rules the roost. And, and at the same time, there are false prophets who are egging them on all the way, saying exactly what their itching ears want to hear. Well, Micah is not a prophet like that. Micah is a real prophet. He's a true prophet, and he stands up 
and he declares the Lord's case against his own people. And he announces to them that judgment is on its way. Two military invasions will come, one after the other. And between them, they will end the life of God's people as they had known it for hundreds of years. Now, I picture these two invasions a little bit like two storms lining up in the ocean, waiting to swing in and break uh, on on land. And uh, these two invasions, so the, 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 the first storm that's going to hit, says Micah and the other prophets, the first storm, it comes from the Assyrians, the mighty power of Assyria, the superpower of the day, and they will wipe out the northern part of Israel. And what's more, they will um, nearly wipe out the southern part as well. But Micah and his more famous contemporary, the prophet Isaiah, both predict that Assyria, the storm Assyria, will only get as far as the gates of Jerusalem. And at that point, it will be repelled. And indeed it is. The Lord repels it spectacularly. If you read the book of Isaiah and the book, the book of Kings, it's the, the, the story is told twice. So spectacular is Assyria's um, dispatch from the gates of Jerusalem. All the Lord's work, the Lord delivers them that time. But not the second, because then Storm Babylon will come in afterwards. About 100 years later, it turns out to be, Storm Babylon will arrive. And Babylon will not stop at the gates of Jerusalem. No. Uh, Micah chapter 4 verse 10 in the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Micah 4 verse 10 announces that Jerusalem's residence itself, the capital's residence, will be taken from Jerusalem forcibly into exile in Babylon. Yes, it is going to happen. Look at chapter 5 verse 1, which is the immediate context of the prophecy we're thinking about today. Micah is speaking to Jerusalem and he says to them, he says, Marshal your troops, O city of troops. He's talking to Jerusalem. Marshal your troops, O city of troops. In other words, brace yourselves, for a siege is laid against you. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. In other words, Babylon will successfully lay siege to you, O Jerusalem. Your walls won't protect you. Your very king in the heart of the palace at the center of your capital will be struck you will fall. Life as you know it is coming to an end. And it's in the context of that hopeless situation, that reality of judgment that faces them, that God speaks a promise, a wonderful promise. Jerusalem's king will fail. It'll turn out to be a man called Zedekiah in the end. Failure, gone. But God will raise up, he says to them, another king. God will raise up one who will more than restore the fortunes of his people. What is this promise? Let's think about it. To help us grasp the promise, we're going to uh, answer together three very simple questions about the king at the center of this Great promise. Three very basic questions. First of all, where does he come from? 
Well, we all, we all know the answer, don't we, already, in a sense. One, one word answer. He comes from Bethlehem. The king from Bethlehem. But let's go deeper and explore for a moment the significance of Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Well, for one thing, let me state the obvious, but it's easy to miss, Bethlehem is not Jerusalem. That's important because, of course, Jerusalem is the capital. So where is a king to be born? In the capital. In Jerusalem. Uh, that's where kings are born, isn't it? But remember that the life of God's people as they knew it was coming to a tragic end, which meant that a restart would be necessary. But the great king is not going to come from the capital. He won't be born with the trappings of power in a blaze of publicity. He will be born in a little town, raised from obscurity. But then there were lots of small towns in, in, in Judea at the time when Jesus was born. Why this small town and not another small town? Well, the clue is in that phrase at the end of verse 2. Um, the end of verse 2 there, we read, his origins are from of old, from ancient times. Translators have taken that in a couple of different ways. You can see that, actually, if you just look at verse 2 there, and the, look at your, you'll see there's a footnote there, there's a, there's, a, there's, there's a debate about how exactly that should best be translated. I'm not going to get into the details of that, the, but, but because, actually, whatever it is saying exactly, it expresses something wonderful about the child of Bethlehem. So it might be saying, on one reading, it might be saying that his origins are in eternity, that is, outside time. In other words, that he is from the very life of God himself in eternity. Could be saying that. And, uh, and in fact, I mean, that, that, that's true anyway, isn't it? I mean, that is the truth about Jesus, who claims to, uh, to have been equal with God before the world began. So that is actually true, that Jesus is from eternity, yes. But it seems to me more likely that in this context, probably that phrase from ancient times, from the days of, 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 of long. It, it, in this context, it seems to refer back to God's original dealings with David. The origin of God's great promise that he made to King David. The new king has his origins in King David. Of course, of course he does. It can, it can only be so, because... God had made a promise to great King David hundreds of years earlier. And the promise was that Messiah, Christ, will be born from among your descendants. From among your offspring. Well, sure enough, David's descendants did sit on the throne. The chances are, probably, it was a man named Hezekiah at the time when, um, when, when Micah was writing these words. And uh, there were various kings, all descended from King David. And, uh, but Micah has just told us that that king will be smashed in the face by the Babylonians. End of story. So, is the promise to David going to die? Picture the promise to David like a golden thread. See, when Babylon comes... It'll be as though the thread has been trampled into the sands of time and lost from view. And God is saying, 
to Micah. He says, I know how to find that golden thread in the sands of the desert. I know how to find it and pick it up again and to resurrect that lost hope that it could ever be found. The Lord says, I will fulfill my promise to David. That's why it has to be Bethlehem. I will fulfill my promise to David. And that explains, of course, why all those years later, 700 years after Micah, the angel Gabriel was sent down to a woman called Mary, who was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and why it should be that the emperor of Rome decreed a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, but meant that Mary had to be in Bethlehem to give birth to Jesus, who fulfills the prophecy. So where does the ruler come from, the promised ruler come from? Well, the answer really, ultimately, is he comes out of God's fixed cast-iron resolve to bless the world through the family of David. That's where he comes from, to do it as promised. And all that is summed up in the name Bethlehem. Where would he be from? Bethlehem. Second question, where is he heading? Where is he going? What's his destiny? Well, let's put it simply to start with, and then we'll build the picture. Um, he, is ba- he is set on a course, um, really, he's set on a course from Bethlehem to the ends of the earth. That's what he's doing. From Bethlehem to the ends of the earth, from a lowly birth to global greatness. That's his journey. So verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. And the rest of chapter 5 really just gives illustrations of what that global greatness means. For, for his people, for all who uh, identify themselves and trust in him. Well, for a start, it means that no enemy ultimately can prevail against them. That's what verses 5 and 6 is all about, um, uh, where Assyria is mentioned. You know, uh, we'll, we'll, basically, Assyria will be beaten, the land of Nimrod. That's a sort of poetic word for, for, for Assyria again. That they will, they will be defeated um, because the Christ's enemies will, will be overcome. So they, the enemies need not be feared. And so Assyria here is standing for God's enemies in all ages. No matter which age, Babylon, um, don't fear. You don't need to fear. Because even though they seem to be on top, the Messiah will see them off. He will win. Assyria, Babylon... They learned what Egypt had already discovered the hard way centuries earlier, which is that none can prevail against Christ's people. It can't be done. He will deliver them. Verse 6, he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. See, the Assyrian does invade. And it looks like the people of God are down and out, done for. But it's not so, because of Messiah. 
And of course, the list of nations, the list of ideas that seem poised to destroy Christ's people today, well, in the end, they will prove just as powerless as those nations of old. Well, verse 7, we get a second picture of what Christ's global greatness is going to mean for his people. So look at verse 7. This is there, if you've got it open still, verse 7. The remnant, that is, that those that are left over um, out of the people and the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. Oh, do you know what? I wrote this, I wrote this on last week, and I wrote in my notes, I thought, I could do with that on my potatoes. <laughs> well, we got it last night, apparently, although I slept right through it. Some of you might have woken up with the crash-bang wallop of the thunder and lightning. I'm blissfully oblivious. But anyway, there were showers. What a blessing it is when it's been dry and the showers and the dew of rain comes along. And he's saying, he's saying that, those who, that, that, that Jesus will, will take those who stick with him through all the challenges. He will take them, the faithful remnant, and make them a blessing right across the world. And it, I mean, it, and it happens. Where do you think the hospitals come from in, in, in the world? U- ultimately, their orig- origin. The universities, schools. It, it ultimately, it comes out of the revolution that swept the world when Jesus Christ came. And again, the, where, the, where, the, where the missions go and plant churches for the soul... What do we see? Again and again, we see springing up alongside them hospitals for the body and schools for the mind. It's what happens. It's extraordinary. Again and again and again. Like dew among the nations. But then there's a a very contrasting picture. Look at um, verses 8 and 9. And this is an altogether more uh, picture, a stronger picture. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion amid the beasts of the forest. So the, the point is that Christ has overcome the world. So anyone who messes with his people do so ultimately to their own destruction. They are as sure to be destroyed as a sheep will fall prey to a lion. Now notice here, just to explain a move that I've made that you, you might, might or might not be aware of. I've been talking about the global church of Jesus Christ rather than the historic nation of Israel. Um, that's deliberate because these pictures here um, in, in Micah 5 apply um, to the time when Bethlehem's child has been exalted. In other words, they apply in the time of the global church, the global Israel. Israel suddenly, at the point of, at the point of Jesus' ascension into heaven, goes global and starts to include not just Jews, but Gentiles, everybody. Brits, Nigerians, Chinese, the Australians, everybody. And scattered among many nations, they have this effect of bringing great blessing but also being the, the, uh, the, the, the lion among the nations. They don't look like it necessarily. Because here's another thing I just want to say at this point. As we think about the global rule of, of Christ, let me try and help us understand this. 
the global rule of Christ has two phases. Let's think about the bake-off. There they are. Think about the bake-off. So think about the bake-off, and probably lots of shows like it, reality shows, is that they're filmed quite a long time before they're aired. So as I understand it, the Bake Off is, ba is filmed about three months before it airs, okay, which means that um, during that time, there are quite a few people who know who the winner is, and there's no doubt as to who the winner is. It's, it's just that, the, you know, it, it's not public. But the, the result is absolutely settled. The winner is decided, but the victory is seen. And actually, the winner goes about living life. Looks pretty ordinary in lots of ways for the winner. But they've won. Of course, it's very different once the show has been aired and the final has been aired and everybody's seen. Because at that point, the victory that was already won is made public. The victory that was hidden is revealed. So Bethlehem's child, he has won in his death and resurrection. He has won. He has global authority now. It belongs to him. But his reign is hidden. In this present age, the present age is allowed to go on. Death still rolls on and wreaks its havoc. Uh, wicked regimes and, and, uh, and demonic ideas and all the rest of it seem to just go on and on and on, wreaking their destruction. And, and we think, did he really reign? Did he rise from the dead? Yep, he reigns. Only at the moment, Sometimes, you see, and, and Christ's people, do they win? It doesn't look like it. If you go to North Korea at the moment, it doesn't look like it. Because often the victories of the people of God in this present age look more like the cross than the resurrection. Make no mistake, he has won. He reigns. And we must trust him. Of course, it will be very, very different when he comes, be very different. Because then the victory that he has already won will be made public, unmissable. And his enemies will be destroyed. Just look at verse 15, which is a very sobering verse. Verse 15, this is, this is not what we we speak of in our polite um, days very easily, but it's, there it is, verse 15. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. That's the work of Christ. That at the coming, the dictators of history, the corrupt magistrates will stand up and face the child of Bethlehem. And he will not muck about. He will judge. And this is where he's heading. The child of Bethlehem is heading from that place of weakness in the manger to the cross 
he is heading to, he, well, he already possesses global greatness, and he is going one when he comes to reveal and unveil that greatness irresistibly. And we must make peace with it and come to terms with it while we can. Because if we don't, it will be too late. <laughs> Once it becomes clear to everybody, it will be too late. Where is he heading? Global greatness. Third question. What does he bring? Well, one word is enough to answer that. And it's in verse 5. There's a wonderful verse. Verse 5. And he will be their peace. He will be their peace. It's an implication, actually, of his global rule. Um, since he's overcome the world, his people need not fear any other power. That's the logic. He's overcome the world, therefore his people don't need to fear any power. So what we're talking about here is not a kind of, it's not a shameful peace. There is a shameful peace that avoids a necessary conflict. You know who that is. Many of you know who that is. It's Neville Chamberlain waving a piece of paper and saying, I've got his words here this morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler, and here is a piece of paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. I believe it is peace for our time. Go home, get a nice quiet sleep. Well, that was all very well for us for a little while. It wasn't so good for the Czechs. Didn't mean peace for them. And in the end, it didn't mean peace for us because you cannot have peace by simply denying. Denial ain't peace. And Jesus' peace is not a peace of denial. It's a peace grounded in victory over all that is evil and all that is wrong. Okay, so it's not a shameful, cheap peace. Neither of it is a, is a kind of sentimental peace, a kind of drug-induced, kind of hazy, peace-man kind of peace. That, um, that again, is, is another version, really, of, of, um, of peace without truth. No, the truth that Jesus brings is a truth built on moral and spiritual reformation. And verses... 10 to 14, make that very, very clear. We're not going to go into them in detail, but we, we, we find out what the, what, the, what, what the Prince of Peace will do among his own peoples. And we read it and we think, whoa! He's, you know, basically what he's saying is that he will root out um, all our dependence on worldly power and prestige. He will destroy our devalued worship. He will rip false gods from our hearts. It's, it's plain speaking. He will not tolerate the presence of lies, falsehood, and false worship, and false dependence among his people. Which is why life as his people can sometimes be rather uncomfortable. But that's the reality. And that is the necessary ground of peace, because this peace is not this sentimental peace without truth. It is peace based and built upon reformation, spiritual, moral reformation. That's Christ's peace, Christ our peace. This is peace in Christ's terms. It's the only peace, actually, that there is the prospect of his coming um, See, 
course, at the time when Micah's writing, Christ's coming is still in the distant future. He knows that as he's, as he's writing it. And yet, he's preaching it at the time, saying, look forward to this person. Look forward to this king, and he will be your peace. He's saying to the future generation that will meet Storm Babylon, he's saying, when Babylon comes, yes, they'll ransack your country, but he will be your peace. He will be their peace when they will be scattered through Babylon in exile. He would be his people's peace when, 800 years later, they were lit as torches to light Nero's dinner parties in Rome. He will be your peace, he says. He will be your peace when the diagnosis is dire, when strivings without and fears within threaten to drag us under the waves. He will be our peace when life as we know it comes to an end. He will be our peace. Christ is our peace. Now, in this phase of the kingdom's life, as the kingdom of God is somewhat hidden, and particularly even more so then, when he comes. You need that peace. I desperately need that peace. Day after day I need it. Well, Jesus says... In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give, as the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled, do not be afraid. John 14 and 16. Right there in Bethlehem, do you remember the Christmas story? Of course, many of us know it backwards. The night he was born, what did the angels sing? Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. And what were his first words to his disciples after he had been raised from the dead and he came among them? Peace be with you. He brings peace. Peace with God. Peace with God, his Father, that he won for us by the shedding of his own blood in our place standing where we should have stood, that we might stand where he stands in the pleasure and the joy of the Father. He brought peace with God. He won it through the shedding of his own blood. Peace among his own people. And you know, his peace often seems completely inexplicable because it comes in the midst of circumstances that are anything but peaceful. And that's why, in that phrase many of us love, St. Paul calls it the peace that passes understanding. You know, the peace you can't get your head around because there's no human explanation for it. Philippians 4. There is no other way to get this peace. You think, how can I get it? How can I have this peace? Well, you, there's no other way to get it than from him, from Jesus. So you can't manufacture this technique, this, this peace through a sort of technique. You actually can't even think your way into it. You can't intellectually reason your way into this, this, this piece. Not that the, the mind is unimportant. Of course it is, we, as we think it through clearly. Of course it's important. But it's actually a personal gift from him because he, it's not that the piece is over there and he picks it up and gives it to us. No, he is the piece. And so we must come to him to get that piece. And that means going to him, to Bethlehem's child, in prayer. And first, um, 
make our peace with him. And for some people, that does involve saying, Lord, I, I'm not at peace with you. I, I need to, I'm sorry. I'm coming to ask your forgiveness. Please be my peace. I'm, I'm becoming yours. I want to become yours. And for some, that, that, may be a, that may need to happen because it never has before. Um, for many of us, it's more a question of, 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 um, of going on doing that <laughs> daily, coming and saying, Jesus, I'm coming to you today. I'm coming to you today. Let me live with you today. And, um, and, and that means recognizing his victory in our lives. It means accepting his word as our rule. It means submitting to the moral and spiritual reformation that he must go on performing in you and in me. And asking him to be our peace in our present troubles and in eternal lives. So where does he come from, Bethlehem? Where is he headed? global rule. What does he bring? Jesus brings his people peace that the world cannot give. So go to him, speak with him. Don't just leave all this as thoughts buzzing around your head. Go to Jesus in prayer. We will in a moment in quiet. And ask him to show you by the power of his Holy Spirit that this ancient prophecy is not just locked away in history but is in fact the doorway into faith and true peace today and forever. A moment of quiet as we go to him, many of us, with renewed desire. stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace Father minister to us now in the name of the shepherd who stands in our midst now minister to us by the power of the Holy Spirit and hold us in your peace. For we ask it in the name of Jesus.